For an opening passage of Scripture, please turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. Ephesians, chapter 3. We'll be reading the first seven verses, in the midst of which there is a parenthesis, literally a bracketing off. I'll skip that because that's not germane to what I want us to focus on this morning. Ephesians, chapter 3, starting at verse 1. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, which, verse 5, in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles, and prophets by the Spirit. What is that great mystery that he revealed to it, to Paul? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. As we'll get into in a few minutes, brethren, the dispensational system that our brother talked about a week or a little over a week ago on Wednesday night is a heresy. That means it's a false teaching. This is one of the passages that you can go to to show that. One of the things that dispensationalism teaches is that God, through Jesus Christ, came to offer his kingdom to the Jews about 2,000 years ago. But he was surprised, and they rejected it. So he had to come up with something else in the meantime called the church for a few thousand years till he could work out all the arrangements to finally bring in the Jews into the promises that he had promised them. That's heresy, especially in light of what we just read. Was the church an afterthought in the mind of God? The church that we are part of today was foremost in God's thought. Not in 2000 2000 years ago, but before God even made this world. It was something he had in mind. And we'll go over that. This is kind of the conclusion of what we'll reach. But I wanted you to think about that as we open up our service this morning. Brethren, I was raised even as a Presbyterian, in a dispensational premillennial system where I felt I was a second-class citizen. The Jews were the preeminent ones. Well, right here it tells us that we are not second-class citizens, brethren. It tells us that we are fellow heirs, verse 6, of the same body and partakers of the promise. Whatever promises God made that are of any impact in the Old Testament... They were pointing to Jesus Christ. And we are the fulfillment of those promises within his congregation today. I want us to rejoice in that. The fact that God chose us. He chose Israel as a picture of his choosing period throughout all history. And we, brethren, in this congregation are not second-class citizens. We are the children of God of promise. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. 
And we should rejoice in that this day. And we should think about it in the context of what our great Savior paid the price so we can have that citizenship, so we can have that adoption, so we can be part of that great and glorious kingdom of His here in this world. Let's go to Him in prayer as we open up our service this morning. Our most gracious, glorious Father in heaven, we thank you that from before the time that you created this world, you already had a plan and a purpose for us as Gentiles to be part of your great kingdom. We're thankful, Lord, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for both your chosen people amongst the Jews and your chosen people amongst the Gentiles, and that 2,000 years ago, Lord, you created this and revealed this great truth through our brother Paul. Help us, Lord, that we can look into these things this day. Lord, help us that we might see the great things that you have done for us. And Lord, that it would move us so that we would live and act like citizens of your great kingdom. Lord, be with us this day. Grant that all that we say, think, and do in these services would be pleasing in thy sight. Lord, as there are men who have preached before this time, and as there are men who are preaching now and will preach later this day, we ask your blessing upon those congregations as well, Father. For, Lord, we are but part of your great body of the redeemed that you have made. And Lord, we ask that you would bless all of your people, wherever they are located around this world this day, so that they might understand, Lord, the great things you've done for them, and that they might live those holy and righteous lives that please you, Father, and that bring glory to your name. Lord, may our praise, may our singing all bring glory and honor to the great name of Jesus Christ, our wonderful Savior this day. For it's in his blessed name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Brother Eric, would you come and lead us in a couple of songs this morning? Find a burgundy book, if you will, and let's start with number 40. Grace is free. Amen. I'm reminded that when uh, the Apostle Paul and others preached to the Gentiles for the first time and welcomed them into the kingdom of God as he was turning from the Jewish nation, it says that they were glad and glorified God because they were part of that kingdom and part of that preaching being welcomed in. Grace is free. Number 40. Praise ye the Lord
Amen. Turn in your red hymn books, please. Your red hymn books. Number 347. We'd like to sing next. The church is one foundation. We'll note that the version in this book has a couple of extra verses that are good. Verses 3 and 4 are nice. Let's sing 347. The church has one foundation, is Jesus Christ the Lord. She is His new creation, by water and power. From Him He came and saw her.
Amen. Brother Neal. Excellent hymns. Thank you, Brother Eric. Wonderful introduction to what we'll be considering in a few minutes. Just a few announcements. Tonight, the young people will be meeting at 6 o'clock at Brother Jerry's house. 6 o'clock tonight at Jerry Evans' house. As you all know, our brother and sister are away for uh, a time of rest and refreshment. We definitely want to make that a matter of prayer for them. It's been a long time since they've had uh, some rest. They had to go to Malaysia and uh, recover from that while working in both of their areas of endeavor that they have. So they definitely need the rest, and we want to pray that the Lord grants them a good time of refreshment. <clears throat> uh, if anyone has a Thanksgiving that they'd like or a specific Thanksgiving, please let me know between services. Uh, our, there's already one or two that I want to make sure that uh, we hear from today. So um, please, again, just let me know between services if you have a specific Thanksgiving you want to make sure is mentioned. It's a glorious thing that we have, brethren, that the Lord has given us. We need to think about it. We need to think about the glorious blessings that the Lord has given us in His congregation. We need to be thinking about it each day of the week. What's going on in our lives? How are our brethren doing? Because this is the kingdom of God here in the world. Much is going on in everyone's life each day of the week. Do you consider the fact that the Lord died... Jesus Christ shed his blood for each and every member of our congregation. Does that mean something to you? Does it mean something that the Lord shed his blood for you? I mean, I say that, brethren, and as the saying goes, if I'm pointing a finger out here, there's three coming back at me. I forget all that all too often. And I'm very thankful for the way the Lord works. Uh, the subject matter that Brother Jonathan obviously wants to preach some more on in the near future about dispensationalism. That was something that many of us were saved and delivered out of. Uh, some of us, tw 30 years ago. And what he did a few weeks ago just really stirred up my heart. And that's what you'll be hearing in a few minutes. A passage of Scripture that uh, the Lord, as I said, is a dear passage to me. Uh, but... I just want us to think about these things. I want us to be excited about them. And I'm very concerned that I don't have the ability to, <laughs> to stir your hearts up myself. I don't have the ability to sit there and impress on you. All I can say is that the Lord has done a lot for us. Amen. We need to think about these things. It's very easy for us to go about our daily tasks and forget, get lost, in all the details of life. The fact that we're citizens of a heavenly country. We have something better than the paycheck we get from whoever pays our salary from. We've got something better to look forward to than going away to the beach. I love the beach. It's a place I used to go as a child all the time. But there's something a whole lot better than the best day you can ever experience at the beach or the mountains or wherever. But thinking about the beach, thinking about what we have to do at work, often distracts us from the 
things of the Lord. So please be in prayer that we can, that I can convey that to you in a few minutes and that it will impact our lives, brethren. Those are our announcements. Brother Eric, please come back with another hymn. Turn back into your red hymn books, if you will. And we'll sing, uh, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. It's number 345. 345. Let's all stand together and sing this hymn before it evil comes. 
Forgive us the coldness and the deadness of our hearts at times. Forgive us the sins that have plagued us, perhaps even this week. Father, forgive us the pull that this world has over us. We are grateful, O Lord, that you have rescued our hearts from ourselves and from your own righteous judgment. We are thankful, Father, for the glorious scheme of thy salvation, which places us in your kingdom and in this church today. Father, please bless us and stir up our hearts with grace that we may rejoice in these things that we hear out of the pulpit this morning and the glorious things that we find written in your word about your church. We're grateful to be included in it. Thank you for not excluding us for all of eternity, but thank you for bringing us in to one fold with the great shepherd. Father, bless our brother Newell with the words and the thoughts that he's prepared and been blessed with today. Bless our hearts to be reunited and rejuvenated by these things today. It's in Christ's name we pray and trust. Amen. Amen. Brother Newell. You may be seated. Through the providence of God in my life, I've done a lot of public speaking from a young age on. So getting up in front of a group and speaking has never really been much of a problem for me. Never been anything that I am that much nervous or afraid of. Except circumstances like this. If you were here to hear what Newell Eastland has to say, big deal. I mean, everybody shouldn't, anybody who knows me knows what level of understanding or whatever Newell Eastland's words are worth. But at this time, we're looking at God's word. And it's more important than any man's word in this world. Standing up and speaking from God's Word is both a great privilege, but it's also a great responsibility. You men who've gotten up here and done things, I think you all have understood that. It's something we need to remember for our, on our pastor's sake. Because whenever you're looking at a subject from Scripture, if you're a spiritual person, if you understand one iota of what's being said in Scripture, You understand that you have an obligation. You are under obligation to the God who wrote this book. This book is unique. It's not like any other book that you've ever read or will read. Because with any other book, you can't know for sure, did the author really know what he was talking about? Was he really able, if he did know what he was talking about, to communicate that? Do I really understand what he's saying? You don't know that. With this book, you know that the Almighty God of the universe spoke. This is His revelation to man. This is His thoughts. And more than that, you know, you might be able, if it's a book that's been written recently, to look up the author and to check it out and ask him, When you said over in page 29 in paragraph 3, when you said such and such, what did you mean by that? Okay? If the author's not alive, it's lost. You can't find it out. Every time you open up this book, the author is not just there. The author is looking over your shoulder. The almighty God of the universe is sitting there looking not just over your shoulder, literally. He's looking over your heart. 
He's looking at your attitude. He's looking at how are you reading this word? Are you reading it just to check off a box in the sheet to say, I've read it? Are you reading it so that sometime when you run across some religious person, you can say, well, I've read my Bible through X number of times. Are you reading it and looking for what the Lord has there? And when you see something there, when you see something that steps all over your toes, what does it do to you? Do you rebel and say, oh, well, after all, Lord, look at all the good things I've done. Why, why are you stepping on my toes there? Or do you humble yourself down and say, oh, Lord, yeah, you're right. I need to make some changes, Lord. We're opening up God's word now, brethren. We're going to open it up and we're going to talk about some glorious things to rejoice in. But for everything that we can look at that we're going to rejoice in today, brethren, there's an obligation on us. Right. What are we going to do with that great, these great things God's done for us? The great things God's done for you and for me. What are we going to do with them? Because <clears throat> he's done some great things. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. After he's talked about our salvation, right? It starts off, chapter 2 starts about us being quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. Glorious. And goes on to talk about by grace we've been saved, verse 8. And that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of our works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. Glorious! Wonderful! And remember, what's the context of this whole book? These are Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. This is a Gentile church, brethren. Ephesus is in Greece. It's way away from Jerusalem. These are all primarily Gentile converts. You can tell that by the way he addresses them and by this very passage we're going to go through today. These are folks who did not have Moses to glean from in the past. These are not people who had all the blessings of being the chosen people of God in their past. These were ignorant pagans who God had saved and redeemed by his grace. And it sent ministers to teach them, in this case, the great apostle Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles. That's the background we're looking at here. <clears throat> and Paul, after talking about their salvation, jumps in verse 11. We want to look at the problem that Paul brings up, which is in verses 11 and 12. Then we want to look at the resolution in verses 13 through 18. And then we want to wrap up, if I can get my pages here, with the results in 19 through 22. I've got 45 minutes. This is stuff you've heard before, believe it or not. Our brother has preached to us from the book of Ephesians. And this is part of what he taught us in Ephesians. But I hope maybe we can look at it with a new light. Hopefully it will mean something a little more to us today. That's my goal, to try to help you to see what a glorious passage this is for us. 
Hebrews, I mean, excuse me, Ephesians 3, 11 and 12. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made with hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Oh, that was a pretty bad way to be. Of course, they didn't know that. (laughs) They were dumb pagans, right? They didn't know that they were missing something. Wherefore, remember, when it talks about in that ye being in time past, what time past is Paul talking about there? Paul's talking about the Old Testament revelation and the time before the preaching of Jesus Christ that was sent to Gentiles. What was that? God revealed himself to one man by the name of Abraham. And through Abraham, a few hundred years later, sometime later, excuse me, not quite a hundred years, he revealed himself to his descendants, one nation. Those were the only people that had the knowledgeable revelation of God, the true God, and how to worship him. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. We'll be flipping to another number of passages. And again, I have a time limitation, so we will be not dwell on any of them too much. But I want you to see with your eyes what the Word of God says. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Here where God has revealed Himself to Israel, He says, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. This is Moses speaking. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon thee nor choose thee because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of the bondman from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God chose Israel. God chose Abraham and Abraham's descendant, who was Israel or Jacob, and in this case, Jacob's sons and his descendants. And notice what it says here. The Lord... Thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Nobody had the revelation of God like there was given at Mount Sinai, but Israel. Turn over to Amos chapter 3. Hosea, Joel, Amos, you minor prophets. Chapter 3. Verse 1 and 2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. Remember what God said back in Deuteronomy? He had redeemed them out of Egypt. Here Amos, a number of years later, is reminding them of that fact. Saying, verse 2, 
You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Amos was bringing a sentence of judgment upon the people. Why? Because they were his special people. They, unlike any other nation, had had the revelation of God to them. Through Moses, through the prophets, God's blessing on them, God's worship centered in Zion, in Jerusalem. They had that. And none of us Gentiles did. None of the Gentiles in Ephesus had this. What was their status? Paul, when he speaks to the learned men, the philosophers, I say learned with tongue in cheek, in Acts chapter 17, as part of his discourse to them, he tells them in verse 30, and the times of this ignorance, he's just rebuked them for their ignorance and not worshiping the true God and worshiping all their little gods and goddesses. He says, in the times of this ignorance, God winked at. God left the rest of the world outside the borders of, of, of Israel in ignorance. He didn't care. God had his elect people everywhere. We know that. But when it came to the knowledgeable understanding of God, who is the true God? What's his character? How should he be approached? How should we live to please this God? Only Israel knew that. No Gentile nation had that knowledge. They had all sorts of corrupt versions of truth that they worshipped. But the true God did not choose to reveal himself to them. Not only that, but when our Lord Jesus Christ came, into the, came onto the scene, he didn't go after the Gentiles to start with, brethren. I mean, if you want only the red writing, you're going to have some problems. Because <laughs> he was a minister to the Jews, right. not to the Gentiles. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Here, Jesus Christ has chosen out his 12 apostles to be witnesses of him. He's sending them out. And in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 10, these 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying... Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. God's original revelation, even in New Testament times, in the ministry of Jesus Christ, was to the Jews. So much so that with all his power of healing, one of his elect children came one time to seek healing for her daughter. Over in the same book of Matthew, over in verse chapter 15. Matthew 15, starting at verse 21, we see a woman from Tyre and Sidon, a Canaanite woman. And she comes asking, begging, pleading for healing for her daughter. It's so much so the disciples say, Lord, she's making such a ruckus. Can, can we tell her to get out of here and leave us alone? And in verse 24, the Lord himself, in a trial of her faith, said to her, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Amen. Now, he healed her daughter and took care of her problem. But notice, in his ministry, he made the point that I'm sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
in another place, what was it? The woman that came who begged, you know, of the crumbs of the table. He came to give bread to the children of Israel. And in Jesus' ministry, all we would get was crumbs. That was our state, brethren. That's what the state of these Ephesians was. Verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ. Again, we're talking about the times before God specifically sent the gospel to the Gentiles. When was that? Somebody help me. When was the first time God sent, specifically sent, a preacher to the Gentiles? Who was he? Peter. What chapter was it? Acts 10. Thank you. Acts 10, we have Cornelius. A man who you look at and you see the characteristics of his life. He was already a born-again child of God. But he was in ignorance. He didn't know the truth. And God sent Peter to tell him what things he should do. Right? So that's the demarcation. It's not just the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's the ministry of the apostles of Jesus Christ. That's when the changing point occurred. We're talking about being practically outside of Christ in this verse. That at that time you were practically without Christ. You didn't know about salvation. You didn't know about God's Messiah, he sent. See, that's a Jewish term. That's not a Gentile term, Messiah. Messiah is a Jewish term. We didn't know about it. Practically, they were outside of Jesus Christ as Gentiles. They were outside the national promises of Israel. We already saw God only knew them, and he gave promises to them. Well, they were outside of those promises. They were outside the knowledge of salvation that God had given through Israel, through their prophets. They were without the true worship of God. Where, I mean, Jesus himself, when he talked to a Samaritan woman, the Samaritans were the closest form of worship, right, to the true worship in Jerusalem. But what did he tell that Samaritan woman? Woman, you know not what you worship. For salvation is of the Jews. So you see, we, we as Gentiles were totally outside of that. We didn't know God. We were aliens from Israel, it tells us. The nation of Israel was God's visible corporate body of people. All you had to do is look over at Israel and you knew those were God's people. If you didn't worship like them, sorry, you were outside of it. Strangers to the covenants. It tells us here. Those covenants were those, the promises that Israel hoped in, right? The promises God made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David. All of these promises, those all came through that group of people. Nobody from Britain. Nobody from Africa. Nobody from other parts of Asia had any part of that. You had to be part of the nation of Israel to be part of those promises. You had to be part of the family lineage of Abraham to have those promises to you, right? No hope. As a Gentile, brethren, we were separate from the source of salvation, God's revelation, which was in Israel. Practically speaking, we were without God in the world. I mean, tell me, how could you walk, could you walk into the temple as a, as a Gentile? Uh-uh. 
No, you weren't part. If you weren't, if you didn't have that magic circumcision, right? I say magic. If you didn't have that emblem, right away, he say, sorry. Down the hall, you know, go to, there's temples, other places, go there. You're not coming in here. That was the state that we were in. That's the state that the Gentiles were in. But, verse 13, now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometime were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Let's look at each of these verses, brethren, and pull some things out of them as we go through. Verse 13, but now, again, talking about now in the time of the gospel being preached to the Gentiles after Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 is an amazing thing, brethren. The council at Jerusalem, which is all of Acts chapter 15, was because of what Peter did. Because of this monumental thing. For how many thousand years had Israel and the Israelites knew it? They knew Deuteronomy chapter 7. They loved that passage and many others that says, we're the only people that God knows. How did Peter, when he approached it, when he came to Cornelius' house, having had a divine vision, what were his first words? You know, it's not a proper thing for me that's a Jew to associate with Gentiles like you folks. I can't do this, except I had a vision. And God told me I shouldn't call anything common that he's made blessed. Obvious implication being, you Gentiles. And then he asked them what they wanted. Cornelius told him. He preached Jesus to him, and he saw the Holy Spirit come down and say, oh, well, hey, with all of his other Gentile, Jewish uh, you know, converts with him, say, hey, brethren, can we, look at this. They've got the same gift God gave us after baptism. we got to baptize these guys. We got to, they're, they're God's children. Do you see it? But that caused a stir. Peter, one of Jesus Christ's apostles, went to preach to Gentiles. And they had a whole, the only church council that we know of that was officially approved, no matter what Rome wants to say, is in Acts chapter 15. And it was a great disputation throughout the world, right? That caused Paul way away from there in Antioch to come down to Jerusalem to get the matter settled. But now, in Christ Jesus, it's in Christ, brethren, we have been made one. Oh, a beautiful passage. Turn to it. Underline it in your Bible. Remember it, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. Actually, you can start in verse 26 to get some a little bit of a context on it. And this is a beautiful chapter, brethren, because that's what Paul is dealing with in Galatians. The whole book of Galatians, but especially chapter 3, is this whole subject about having to be Jewish to be saved. Having to keep Jewish commandments and have Jewish circumcision, all of that stuff in order to get saved. That's what he's combating throughout this whole book. And what does he say in verse 26 of chapter 3 of Galatians? For ye are all the children of God through your circumcision, through your keeping of the law, by faith in Christ Jesus. 
For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Excuse me, Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if that wasn't enough, brethren, look at the next verse. And if ye be Christ, in the context of which he's just described, of believing on Jesus Christ, being baptized into Jesus Christ, having put on Jesus Christ, if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Wow! Do you understand what was just said there? All those covenants, all those promises that we were outside of because we were not part of Abraham. If we're part of Jesus Christ, we're smack dab in the middle of it. We are the promised seed. We have the promises that Abraham was to get because Jesus Christ was that great promise and his salvation and eternal heaven and glory with him. All of that's included in there. In Jesus Christ, we Gentiles, these brothers over in Ephesus, Gentiles who used to work, worship Apollo, who used to work, uh, worship Mithra or somebody else. By being in Jesus Christ, they were brought into the covenant promises just as if, even better than if, as we're studying, as brother Jonathan's pointing out in Romans 9, right? Better than if they had Abraham's blood through and through their veins. Because they're the spiritual children of Abraham being in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we are all one. We're all Abraham's spiritual seed. Back over here, back to Ephesians. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. His blood brings us to, to God. It brings us nigh. Colossians chapter 1. By the way, whenever you're reading the book of Ephesians, Colossians is almost a parallel to it. Colossians is a very wonderful book to read because some of the things you'll find, whether Paul wrote at the same time or not, obviously the Holy Spirit had him have similar thoughts as he was writing to these two different congregations. But in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, talking about Jesus Christ, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, Oh, Jesus came to bring a kingdom, right? And the Jews rejected it, so God had to have an afterthought called the church. No! Look right here. We're coming right into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Brethren, why do we have that translation? Praise the Lord, because Jesus Christ gave his blood for us. He shed his blood. He died for us. That's why we have this wonderful kingdom citizenship paper. You know, back in those days, if you were one to become a Roman citizen, you could buy it. You know, you could go out and buy it. Or you could be a, a, an officer 
or even a common soldier in the Roman army and win your citizenship. Today you can still do that. You know, there's people all the time in our military that are from other countries. They come to the U.S. and they volunteer for military service. And based on good military service, they'll become citizens. First-class citizens, just like the rest of us, right? Because they've given their life in defense of this country. Well, here's how our citizenship was paid for in heaven. Because Jesus Christ died for us. Same passage, look down at verse 20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Look at what Jesus Christ's death did for us. We're made close to God. We're made nigh. We're reconciled with God. We're given citizenship in his heavenly kingdom by Jesus Christ. Verse 14, for he is our peace. Oh, for he is our peace who hath made both one. Look at these words. Both Jew and Gentile one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. There was a wall of partition between us, wasn't there, brethren? It's called the Old Testament. It's called the fact that you only have I loved of all the people of the earth. Well, God broke that down in Jesus Christ. He's our peace. You know, we were at war with God, weren't we? Wasn't there an enmity between us and God in our sinful nature? Who made peace? Who is the one who stood between the two warring parties and negotiated a settlement? It was Jesus Christ. And what was that settlement? I'm going to lay down my life. No, I have laid down my life. Here's the blood, Father. That's good enough for me. I've got peace with those folks. And then the Lord gave a bunch of people called the apostles to spread that word and to reconcile us to God, his people, because of what he's done. Look at the unity. He said he would what? What? Hath made both one. I mean, both, that's one and two, one. First Corinthians chapter 12. Take a look at this as a cross-reference. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. For as the body is one, here Paul is talking to a church made up of Jews and Gentiles that had all sorts of dissension in the midst of it, right? But he's using an analogy of a body, you know. And he says, for as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many, are one body, you know, you look at Newell standing here, and Newell's got this hand and this hand and these fingers and these fingers. All of those are different things. These arms, these legs, this head, this chest, all the organs inside me. If you look at all the individual pieces, they're all different, right? They have different functions. They look different. And yet, it all comes together to make Newell Eastland, to make me. 
For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. And in case you didn't catch it, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, we've heard that before, haven't we? And have been all made to drink into one spirit. Here's the unity we have. Jew and Gentile in one body. Now tell me, I may be jumping ahead of myself. My time's running out. Especially all of you that are medical students, right? How effective is a body that you let stay together for, let's say, 15, 20, 30 years, and all of a sudden you're going to chop off the arm and the leg and put it somewhere else? How effective is that body? You say, no, that's stupid. That, that body's not going to be very effective at all. Those limbs that are cut off, they're going to die without some extraordinary measures to keep them alive, right? Well, that's dispensationalism. I mean, these are the passages of Scripture, right? It's talking about what happened at the time of the apostles in the first century, of everybody being brought together this body. But dispensationalism says, no, down the road, it's going to be hacked off because the Jews are special. So those little pieces that are Jewish, they're going to be moved separately out, right? Excuse me? I'm sorry, this doesn't make good nonsense. Oh, I have a big, I have a big difficulty, you see here. I believe God, God is true and every man's a liar. Amen. Including Clarence Larkin, including, including C.I. Schofield, including Hal Lindsey, including how, whoever many people you want to add to the list. Because I see what God says here. He put together one body. Clearly, the division between Jew and Gentile has been eliminated in the New Testament church. Let's go move on. Verse 15. <clears throat> Having abolished in his flesh the enmity. There's that warfare we had, right? Jesus Christ abolished the enmity we had with God. How? Well, because we'd broken his law. So what did he do? He took the punishment of our breaking that law. He also abolished the in-between between us and the Jews. Why? Same thing. That law stood between us. Well, he, Paul tells us, though, that, see, if we're in Jesus Christ, well, we are the promised seed of Abraham. So we're right in there with him. And how was that accomplished? By the shedding of his blood. So she, see, by the shedding of God's blood, by the shedding of Jesus Christ's blood, two things were accomplished. We were reconciled to God, and we were reconciled in one body with the Jews. Way back there at the time of the apostles. Having abolished in his flesh, again, what was the basis of that reconciliation? He lived a perfect life. I mean, the Jews always had sacrifices they were having to give, right? And could you give a blemished sacrifice? No, it had to be a uh, a sacrifice without spot and blemish. Otherwise, God wouldn't accept it. Was Jesus Christ without spot and blemish? Oh, yes. He was the Lamb of God. When it came time for his, uh, to, for his trial, what were the worst charges they could raise against him? What was the charge that they used that said, you know, well, he's obviously a sinner? He said, tear down this temple and in three days I'm going to raise it up. 
Speaking of the temple of his body. So that was his awful crime. The fact that he said that I'm going to die for the sins of my people and I've got power to raise myself back up from the dead after I'm done with that. That was his charge. His life was the basis of that sacrifice being accepted because it was a perfect sacrifice. And that sacrifice itself was the basis on which we are redeemed. In his flesh, being a man, having a body that he would then give in sacrifice for the sins of his people. Having abolished in his his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Take a look over at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. Start with verse 13. And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Again, brethren, do you see the picture here? What does the, our citizenship papers look like? They're red. They're bloody. It was the death of Jesus Christ. It was Him taking His perfect life, taking His human life, and offering it up for us. It was Him laying down that life, and then taking it back up again, to showing, showing us that He'd conquered death. That's the basis of our salvation, brethren. But that's also the basis of us being the family of God. Of us being the church of God. The people of God. In the kingdom of God. For he makes of one, he makes what? Of twain, one new man. So making peace. You know what, brethren? Even in that church, even in this new body, both Jew and Gentile had to have a transformation. If we came in just as we naturally are, we can't make it, can we? Because we're wretched. We're sinful. But look at Galatians chapter 6 and verse 15. Galatians 6.15 For in Christ Jesus... And that's what we're talking about, right? That's how we get into this kingdom. That's how we get into His church. We have to be in Christ Jesus, but in Christ Jesus we're in those promises of Abraham. Neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. He's made us a brand new creature. And isn't that fitting for the kingdom that we're supposed to inhabit? I don't care whether you're a Jew. You weren't good enough to be in this new kingdom of Jesus Christ. Just in your flesh. Just because you're Abraham's seed, physically. Us Gentiles obviously weren't good enough. So he had to do something to transform both parties to be in this body. He had to give his life so that he could make a new Jew and a new Gentile into one body. Well, he made us all Christians. Followers of Jesus Christ. 
Verse 16, and that he might reconcile, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body. How many times has he said that? How many times does he say both? One, two to one. Uh, except 2,000 years later when the uh, millennium comes. Then they're both, the, the one's going to become two again, right? Please show me the passage that tells me that. I go in the predominance of Scripture. I have not found one passage yet, see? One passage that says that. I'm showing you passages that plainly teach two different parties coming together into one. And we have peace with God. Both we have peace with God directly. We have peace with God and our brethren. Those are all the effects of Jesus Christ's redemption. We have peace with one another. The law that separated the Jew and the Gentile, it's been taken care of. Jesus has taken care of that problem for us. Having slain the enmity thereby. Verse 17, And came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and to them which are nigh. Now, brethren, you got to read your Bibles very carefully. And when you do, you can find some wonderful little tidbits here and there. Notice the difference here. Who did he preach to? He preached that you were afar off is listed first. And to you that are nigh. Well, but we know historically he went to the Jews first, didn't he? Not to the Gentiles. Oh, he's just showing here that, hey, we're all one. Even though they had it first, chronologically in this sense, it's more important talking to us. Here we're talking about practical salvation, by the way. He came and preached peace to you that were far off and to them that were nigh. You know, Paul gloried. We've already read that passage. The first seven verses of the next chapter, he gloried in the privilege he had of preaching this gospel to us Gentiles. We've already said the gospel we know was preached first to the Jews. Jesus Christ preached it. His apostles were commanded to preach to the Jews first. It wasn't until Acts chapter 10. But God changes the order here. Go over to Acts 15, where we have that discussion, where we have the issue resolved about preaching to these dirty old Gentiles that Peter did. Acts chapter 15 Again, this is something I saw the Lord showed me 30 years ago, and it cheered my heart up, always thinking that, well, as a good Presbyterian, a me- you know, a-, a member of one of Jesus Christ's church, I'm a second-class citizen because he really loves the Jews, and he gets some special things in store for them in the future. Yeah, Jesus Christ died for me, but I was an afterthought. It was really the Jews that God really was wanting to go after. Acts chapter 15 We have Peter speaking. Okay? Look at verse 11. Acts 15, 11. Start with verse 10. Now start with verse 9. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Peter explaining to all the Gentiles there, the Jews, excuse me, who were contending about it. He was explaining to the church there in Jerusalem, look, God did the same things to them that he did to us. Now, therefore, 
Why tempt you God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Ooh. You mean all that wonderful promises and blessings? That beautiful law? It was a yoke that you and your dad couldn't bear? That's right. They couldn't fulfill that law. They couldn't do it. They needed Jesus Christ to deliver them from that law because it damned them. Much less the Gentiles. Because they had the law. The Gentiles could say, well, God never spoke to us that law. But he did to you Jews. But my verse is the next one. But, what's the relief from that burdensome law? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord, Jesus Christ, we, who's speaking that? Peter. What was Peter? Jew or Gentile? Jew. We Jews shall be saved even as those Gentiles. He turns it around. Instead of the Jews being the preeminent ones, Jesus Christ is the preeminent one who's saving both sides, Jew and Gentile. And the Lord reverses the order to show that out to us. And it came from the mouth of a Jew. Peter, an inspired brother of ours, who the Lord told exactly what to say and how to say it. Is that comforting to you, brethren? That was comforting to me when I saw that. When somebody pointed that out. No, Jesus turned it around. I mean, Peter turned it around here. Saying that we Jews are going to be saved just like those Gentiles are saved. That just turned their world. Well, their world was already upside down. Jesus Christ and his gospel just turned the whole world. But the Jews and the Gentiles upside down. So here we have. Came and preached peace to us who were far off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access. Again, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Oh, see, we need an intermediary to have access to God, right? The Holy Spirit. But both. Jew and Gentile have that same access. We both have that intermediary that can bring us to God. And notice, are you seeing it? How often Paul is using that term? He's taking this and this and, you know, we're one by having the way we access God through the Holy Spirit. We're one because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. He broke down the middle wall of partition to make one body. We both, Jew and Gentile, have access through Jesus Christ. What the Jewish ordinances couldn't provide, grace provides. Didn't you see that in the passage we just read? It wasn't the Jewish ordinances. It's grace of God. And the Jewish ordinance only pointed out the need for the grace of God. Through one spirit. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Let's take a look at this one spirit quickly. Because my time is fleeing from me. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 
Paul talks about in verse 1 the fact that the law is only a shadow of the good things to come, never the substance, and the, the sacrifices could not. The sacrifices they offered could not obtain those things. Verse 4, it's not possible for the blood of bulls or goats to take away sin. But, therefore, he, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the book, volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God, that's our Lord Jesus Christ. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offering, verse 8, and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he might establish the second. That Old Testament's being done away with, brethren. By the which will. What will is that? It's the will of Jesus Christ to take the punishment for our sins. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Not once for the Jew, not once for the Gentile, once for all of God's saints. Goes on to talk about the priesthood there, that it always had to offer more and more sacrifices. But, verse 14, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Wherefore the Holy Ghost also is witness to us. For after that he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter the holiness by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is through his flesh. Jesus Christ is what brings us together. Jesus Christ is what makes us able to go into the throne room presence of the Lord. What's the result? Verse 19. Now therefore ye are no longer strangers. Ye are no longer strangers, no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Notice that. Based on what Jesus Christ has done, verses 13 through 18, we're not strangers. Gentiles are no longer strangers from God's kingdom. We're fellow citizens. Fellow citizens. There's no second class status there for any of us, brethren. We're full citizens in the kingdom of God. Think about it. Over in the book of Revelation, what does John tell us in like verse 5 and 6 of the very first chapter? That God has made us kings and priests unto Him through Jesus Christ, right? Then he goes into chapter 2 and starts talking about these things to what? The seven churches of Asia. What's the first church he talks to? In chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The church at Ephesus. The church of Ephesus, all those brethren were kings and priests unto God. 
We've already been made. We're already part of the heavenly kingdom, brethren. Jews and Gentiles in the same kingdom. Over in Acts 15, 16, I, I don't have time now, but over there where it talks about the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David, that's David's house, right? And what does James say that rebuilding is? It was the bringing in of Gentiles that Peter was defending. Amazing. Amazing. We're built, verse 20, upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Do you realize that the end of the ministration of the law was in the ministry of John the Baptist? The law was until John. Since then, the kingdom of heaven has been preached. The kingdom of God is preached. That's the church, brethren. And that's the church made up at that time of converted Jews and Gentiles. This is a new building, brethren. You know, over in Hebrews 9.10, Paul talks about the reformation that was going on then. Not a reformation some 1,500 years later, a reformation that was going on in the first century. And that was what we're talking about. The changing of the Jewish way of worship to the New Testament way of worship. And in that body, you had, what, special seats for the Jews? No. Jews and Gentiles, both equal members, fellow members of the kingdom of God. It's a new, it's a new building. It tells us in verse 21, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. In whom ye also are builded together, verse 22, and habitation of God through the Spirit. Verse 21, you can see the outline later with the proofs for it. Verse 21 is talking about the spiritual kingdom of God that Jews and Gentiles are part of, but it's more than just an individual congregation. That's what Paul was talking about over in Hebrews chapter 12. You know, the, the assembly of the firstborn, you know, the souls of men made perfect. You know, part of us are in heaven already. Part of our brethren are there. Some of us are here in this room. Some of us are over in Malaysia. We're scattered throughout the world. Everywhere Jesus Christ is worshipped in his congregations is what's referred to here. Verse 22, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. That's Paul talking to the Ephesians themselves, their individual congregation. Do we believe in a church universal in the sense of which Protestants say no? Uh-uh. And that's a whole nother study to tell you why. But do we believe that there are more saints and redeemed of the household of God than we see in this building? Oh, yes. They're the ones that are in verse 21. The ones in verse 22 are the individual congregation. In summary, brethren, my whole point has been to try to show you how that dispensationalism is a monstrous heresy. It's a blasphemous heresy. It wants to, I don't know where to start of what it wants to deny. Of 
But the biggest thing it wants to deny is what Jesus Christ set out to do. Because we've already seen that Gentiles in Jesus Christ are Abraham's seed and heirs of the promises that were made to him. Galatians 3.29 I didn't read it, but you can read it yourself, that those redeemed out of every nation, tongue, people, are kings and priests to God. Revelation 5, 9-10. In that kingdom of Jesus Christ. God's Holy Spirit baptizes Jew and Gentile into one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. Both elect Jew and Gentile are made one spiritual man. Where? In Jesus Christ. Galatians 6, 15. The gospel is preached to the Gentiles and their inclusion into the house of, of God, the church, fulfills God's promise to rebuild David's house. Acts 15, 14 through 18. God's intent from all eternity, brethren. God's intent from all eternity was to have a redeemed family who Jesus Christ would pay for with His blood. And they were made up of what at one time were Jews and Gentiles brought together in one body He calls His bride. His church, His kingdom, Jew and Gentile. And that was a mystery. That was a mystery that David never knew. Moses never knew. Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah. No one really understood that until the time of the apostles. And the one who stood at the best was Paul. And that's why he was made the the apostle of the Gentiles. To reveal this mystery to us. Ephesians 3, 1 through 7. Brethren, I feel very inadequate for what I've done this day. I leave it up to the Spirit of God that you would see these things. That they would excite you. That you would take great joy in them. And that you would use them. Remember what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. The blessings that we have as being His congregation are because He laid down His life for us. How should we live for Him? May God bless us to do that. Please join me in standing. Our most gracious, kind Father, we thank You, Lord, that You revealed these precious truths to our brother Paul and sent them to us through all the many many providential mechanisms you use so that we here 2,000 years later know and understand these things. Father, help us that we might love and adore the Lord Jesus Christ because of the great sacrifice that He put forth to make everything that we have possible. We thank You, Lord, that we have peace with You. We thank You, Lord, that You 2,000 years ago took two groups that had been at odds with each other throughout the ages and made them one in your bride. Help us, Lord, to live as that bride. Help us, Lord, to live as that pure, chaste, and holy bride to bring forth praise, glory, and honor to the magnificent bridegroom, Lord, that we are married to. Dismiss us now, Lord, with thy blessing. Bless the food that we're about to partake of. Grant it that it would 
give us strength and nourishment. And Lord, may our praises be acceptable in thy sight. For we ask all of this in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.